All right, good morning, guys. Wow. Wow. That was weak. Uh, good morning, guys. Much better. Uh, my name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor, and uh, we are going to be continuing our study in the book of James this morning. Um, you should have a study book uh, that we designed to go along with this series. If you do not, uh, would you just raise your hand? We'd love to just put one of those books into your hand. Um, and uh, these books are designed to help you do three things, to engage the text before the sermon with a little bit of observational study to get you into it and help you study. And then when you listen to the sermon, there's a place to take notes and process some more, what you've been thinking about, what God's been showing you. And then the final section pushes you out into conversation and community where, where you talk to others about what you're learning in Scripture, which is an incredibly important part of Bible study, doing it in community because God speaks to us not just privately, but, but through His people. And so we've designed to do that in community groups. So if you're one of our community groups, these books are going to be pretty vital to you in the coming season. Uh, if you're not in our community groups, you can still do it in small groups or with others. Um, but we encourage you to engage, okay? We encourage you to engage. I'm, the reason we put all the effort into developing these things is so that you be blessed, all right? We really believe you're going to be blessed the more you engage um, and study the, uh, the Word of God. All right, today we're going over to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, don't gra- worry about it. You can grab one off the chairs around you. The text is in your study book, or you can grab one of our Bibles and go over to page 1011. Page 1011, we're going to James chapter 1. Hopefully you did uh, a little bit of the inductive observational Bible study this week. I hope you enjoyed that, uh, digging into these verses, um, because I think it's going to help you to engage um, our study this morning. All right, over the last seven years, um, I've seen a pattern emerge that is a little too obvious to ignore. Um, Lauren and I talk about it all the time, and that is that God will often put me through a lab before He enables me to give a lesson, uh, which is why she hates it when I'm teaching on marriage or conflict, because that means the week before that message, we are in marriage and in conflict. And, um, and so, like for real, this isn't like, this is a real thing. Uh, the first line in today's text is, um, count it all joys, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds. Um, I had an interesting lab uh, this weekend. Uh, Yesterday morning when I woke up, I woke up with a pretty severe pain in my side. I didn't know what it was, Um, thought it would be potentially just a passing discomfort, Um, tested to see if it might be an appendix pressing around. Um, The pain increased. I started getting the the sweats and the chills and, and uh, I'm like, oh, come on, just go away. Um, I'm kind of cheap. I hate spending money on the doctor if I don't have to. But when I started throwing up because of the pain, um, I realized that um, more than likely this was not going to be something I could solve on my own. Um, I've only thrown up from pain twice in my life, and both were the result of kidney stones. And so uh, the doctor did confirm that uh, I was passing a kidney stone. Um, and uh, praise God. Uh, because on the eighth day, God created drugs. <laughs> and, uh, and all those who were in pain said, yes, it is good. Yes, it is very good. Um, because if it weren't for those, I could not even hope to be standing in front of you. I would still be curled up on the bathroom floor in the fetal position looking at the bottom of my toilet. Um, 
But yeah, it's right about there, if you want to know. It's, it's, it's on its way out. Uh, if you don't know what a kidney stone is, just think about one of those gumballs that falls out of a tree that, you know, if you step on barefoot, gives you excruciating Lego-like pain in your foot. Um, those are passing through these tiny, tiny little tubes from your kidney to your bladder. They're full of nerve endings. And um, uh, it, it's pretty bad. So um, yesterday, as I was, I had about two hours of laying on the bathroom floor in excruciating pain, uh, I kept having the line float through my head, count it all joy, count it all joy, count it all joy. I'm like, Lord, I'm not enjoying this lab. Not liking this. I don't know what lesson I'm supposed to be taking away from this. Um, so, what in the world does this mean? Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. I, I hope to make some sense of that text this morning as we dig into it and that we can see that it really is something beautiful taking place here. Let's take a look at James chapter 1. I'm going to read out loud verses 2 through 8 and you follow along. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind." For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Um, James comes out swinging here. Uh, I don't know if you noticed that. Generally in these, these letters, when you read through the New Testament, there's an introduction, you know, like, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the saints who are in Rome, and then there's a period of thanksgiving and an opening prayer and a salutation, and, and James is like, hey, y'all, I'm James. You should take joy in your suffering, right? I mean, he just comes out like, like it is not just sudden, uh, it is audacious, um, because really, if we think about it, what does joy have to do with pain? How often do we associate joy and suffering Generally, what we think is we have to avoid suffering to get to joy. We have to overcome it, avoid it, end it, kill it. Um, what in the world is James talking about? Um, he's, not, he's not being vague in his language. Is, is he saying that, that we are always supposed to be happy as followers of Christ, that, that we are to be these uh, joy bundle bags of cheerleader goodness, just walking around raw rawing Jesus all the time and happy. I mean, is that it? Like, is and if I am, if I'm not, if I'm actually sad, does that mean I lack faith? If I if I feel deeply hurt by betrayal, if I'm struggling with anger toward toward people who have hurt me, or anger toward God who could have prevented it, if I am dealing with depression. Does that mean I lack faith? Is there something wrong with me? Well, I'll just tell you up front, the answer is no. That's not what he's saying at all. In fact, I think that's a misreading of the text. In fact, I think there's a lot of misreadings of this text that I hope to help uh, sort out as we work our way through this. Um, I want us to look very, very carefully at what he's saying in this first verse. Um, let me just, at the outset, um, kind of highlight two, two things. The first is, is that the text we're dealing with, because of the way James writes, it makes it a little bit difficult for me to teach um, because he doesn't develop thoughts 
in a linear fashion. We have two paragraphs here that seem to be about two totally different topics, right? The first, he says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. And in the second, he says, if you lack wisdom, ask of God because God gives generously, right? But I think there's actually more overlap in these passages than first glance um, would enable. So I'm going to make some observations here, and, and um, hopefully this is helpful to you. Um, but I just want to point out a few things. First of all, faith. There is a key idea of faith in, uh, in both. Um, uh, in the first one, James says God's going to grow your faith. And in the second one, he says there are ways to approach God that undercut your faith, right? Beyond that, um, he talks about a steadfastness in the first paragraph, that God is going to produce a steadfastness, a, a, a solidity, a strength within us. Uh, and in the second one, he talks about how there are ways we can approach God with doubt, which is the opposite of steadfastness, right? It is, it is approaching conflicted. It is approaching without confidence. It is approaching without a, a firm foundation. Uh, beyond that, uh, the full effect of the first one is, is that you will be complete, perfect and complete, which indicate uh, maturity, wholeness, and strength. But there's another way of approaching God that ends up with us being double-minded and unstable. So what I want you to see is that I believe James is actually talking about the same thing in these two passages, but he's coming at it from two different angles. He's coming at it on the one hand saying, this is what God is doing in you. You need to, you need to embrace this and work toward it because it's going to produce, it's going to help you become a specific kind of person. And in the other, he's saying, there's a way you can approach God that undercuts all that. And when you approach God in this way, you actually avoid, you actually undercut um, the blessing of what God is, is giving. So we're going to begin with this first paragraph and, and kind of work our way down. Let's, in fact, let's start with that opening sentence. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Um, huh. Various kinds. This word various in the Greek is interesting. It literally means variegated. You're like, Steve, that's really helpful. Um, so variegated is, is a word that means multicolored. Okay. One of the reasons I enjoy uh, studying the Greek behind the text is it's a little bit like, like um, man, some of you aren't, you, a lot of you have no idea. You, so this is a bad illustration. But I remember as a kid, um, way, way back when, our first TV was black and white. You're like, what? Yeah, seriously, it was like a black and white. And then when you got a color, it was like this whole new experience, right? Today it would be like maybe going from, I don't know, high def to ultra 3D cosmic I don't even know what they call it, right? I mean, it's like your virtual reality, right? You're actually transported into the scene, whatever. Um, but, but when you look at the Greek, a lot of times it doesn't necessarily change the meaning, right? You don't have to know Greek to study your Bible, but it can be helpful because it adds color. And so this word, variegated, the reason this grabbed me is that it's clear to me that, that James is talking about not just trials like we normally think about it, right? When we think about trials, a lot of times we think about the big stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like, like the financial crisis that took you off guard or, or the relational um, betrayal that, that hurt so badly or, um, you know, a kidney stone that caused you to lick the bathroom floor, um, right? But, but, but this word indicates that there are actually trials that come in all shades and all, all colors, right? What about the slow guy in the fast lane? Right? <laughs> Some of you are like, oh, I know that pain. Yeah, me too, 
right? Stay out of the left lane if you're going the same speed as everyone else, please. Um, what about, what about the, the grocery line? You know, do you guys do that same thing where you go to the grocery line and you try to pick the one that's going to get you through the fastest and invariably you pick the slowest one? right? You are, you're like, you mark yourself. You know who is in line at the same time as you, and you, you're, you're measuring your success, and you fail. Um, that, that is a trial. That hurts. What about, what about a bad teacher? Um, you know, if you're in college, and you've got this inept teacher who you know more about the subject than they do, and yet they have the power of your grade. What about a, a bad boss, somebody who, who has been promoted because of whatever reason, but now you're under them, and their ineptitude is actually causing you daily pain and, and ultimately making you look bad, right? What about, what about an upset stomach? You, are you catching what I'm saying? How many trials do you go through on a daily basis? A lot, right? When, when you're talking about variegated trials, multicolored trials, all the different shades of struggles we go through, you go through countless trials. And what James is saying is, is man, when you're going through all of these trials, not just the big ones, all of them, all the different shades, you need to have a mindset that enables you to go through them in a way that strengthens your faith, right? All of them. So he's not just talking about, I want you to catch this, he's not talking about something you do in the big trials. He's talking about a mindset you develop daily. You catching that? It's a way of approaching life. It's a way of, of, of bringing your faith to bear on your daily circumstances, all of them. Not just the big trials that you know you need a lot of help with, all the little ones that you think you need no help with, right? It's a way of seeing life. So what is this way? Well, he tells us that you are to count it all joy. That word all um, is a, uh, uh, an emphatic um, word. Uh, one of the translations, I liked this, translated as pure joy. Count it as pure joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. You're like, Steve, that's not helping. I know, it's really not. It's actually making it worse, right? How in the world are you supposed to experience pure joy when you're suffering? How are you supposed to experience pure joy when, when you're in pain, when you are hurt, when you've been betrayed, when you are struggling with anger and you have to forgive someone who hasn't even asked you for forgiveness? How in the world do you experience pure joy in the variegated trials of life. And I think part of the solution is found in that very first word, count. I want you to catch this. He's not saying feel pure joy in the various trials of life. That would be an impossible command, and in fact, I think an unhealthy and unspiritual command. A lot of people try to do this. They basically try to stay above all the negative feelings of life. I'm I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be joyful. They fill their minds with mantras and positive sayings, and, and, and they basically, by the, the act of their will, are determined not to feel the negative emotions of life. And, and, and that's not maturity, and that's not strength. That is actually emotional immaturity. Uh, that is actually spiritual weakness. Jesus felt all of his feels. You know what I'm saying? He felt the hurt. He felt the sorrow. He was not a stranger to his tears. He understood what it meant to be betrayed and actually be hurt by that betrayal and not have to hide behind posturing and fighting in order to protect his weak, uh, hurt soul. I mean, you need to feel your feels, right? He's not saying feel pure joy. He's saying count it as pure joy. And that is fundamentally different because counting it as pure joy is an act of faith. 
It's a way of seeing your trials in the light of your, of your faith in God. That there is a God who is greater than your circumstances. There is a God who is greater than your trials. There is a God who is above your pain. And he's at work. He hasn't forsaken you. He hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't left you. He's there. Count it. That means look at your suffering through the lens of your faith. Right? Count it, pure joy, knowing that you have a God who is with you and for you in the midst of your suffering. Now, I want you to catch this, you guys. Here's an interesting thing I have discovered. Um, emotional maturity, um, I'm still learning, <laughs> and it has come to me late. I have spent most of my life a stranger to my own tears, unable to feel my own feelings. Um, if somebody were to ask me, how are you feeling? I'd just say, nah, bad. Well, okay, what does that mean, bad? I don't know, whatever. I don't want to talk about it, right? I don't do the bad stuff, right? I'm just going to get over it, shut up, leave me alone. Um, but, but I have learned that, that, that I can name, first of all, I've learned how to name my emotions. I actually tell you what I'm feeling. But beyond that, interesting thing is that you can experience sorrow, deep, profound, real, gut-wrenching sorrow, and joy simultaneously. Joy and sorrow are not mutually exclusive. And in fact, sometimes it's feeling the sorrow that increases the joy. Sometimes you have to actually get to the joy through the sorrow. There are times you are blocking yourself from, from experiencing joy because you refuse to go through the path of the sorrow. You lock it down. The problem is when you lock down your sorrow, you can never differentiate one emotion from another. You lock down all of them. And you actually deaden your ability to experience not just sorrow, but joy. You can experience sorrow and joy at the same time. You can experience um, hurt and joy. You can experience betrayal and joy. As, as weird as that sounds, it is absolutely true. Those things can coexist because as followers of Christ, we live in this broken world for the world to come. We live in this broken age, but, but our hope isn't in this age. It's in the age to come. We are in this weird overlap of the ages where, where we live currently in the kingdom of man that is dying, but we're living for the kingdom of Christ that is being born into the world. When we look at our suffering through eyes of faith, it enables us to experience the sorrow and the brokenness of the here, but have a foretaste of the hope of the joy of the there. So you can experience um, joy and sorrow. You know what you can't experience joy with? Bitterness. You cannot experience joy and bitterness. You know why? Because bitterness is joy that's gone bad. Bitterness is joy that's expired and gone sour. Bitterness is self-focused, self-pity, um, self-sorrowed. And when you're focused on self, when you lock in on, on, on what you've lost, what you've been defrauded of, what you, it, it, it's a root of bitterness, the, the author of Hebrews tells us. And that root of bitterness takes root in our hearts and it creates all kinds of nasty and ugly things within us. Now the thing with bitterness is most of us don't know we're bitter. Most, I'm not bitter, right? Get a little defensive, right? Sign of bitterness. Um, so how do you know? How do you know if you're bitter? Well, let me ask you this. Do you ever struggle to take joy in other people's blessings? When someone else gets the very thing you wanted to get, do you find yourself unable to celebrate with those who celebrate, take joy with those who take joy? Do you find yourself subtly, maybe quietly, and maybe in ways you don't even want to admit resenting them? 
because they have what you don't. And they got what you wanted and thought you deserved. Do you quietly and maybe even in the unspoken parts of your heart and your brain hold on to resentment and anger toward God because God, the giver of all good gifts, didn't give you the good gift you thought you deserved and needed? That's bitterness. That's bitterness. Joy gone bad. Joy that's gone sour. And you cannot have joy and bitterness because bitterness is all about resentment and resentment kills the soul. Bitterness blocks us from joy. So listen to me, you guys. Counting it all joy when we face various trials is actually an antidote to bitterness. It is bringing faith to bear on our suffering in such a way that our joy doesn't go bad. It keeps a perspective on our pain that enables us from becoming self-focused and self-pitied. Because we realize that in the midst of all of this brokenness, God is doing something to heal and restore in ways we can't see and maybe we don't understand. But he has not forsaken us. He has not left us. He still is present. So coming out of this command, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter trials of various kinds, we now run into these two paragraphs that, that describe two ways of, of coming into life. And James does this a lot. James sets up these dualities. Here's one way to do life, and here's another way to do life. And, and we've already described. The first paragraph is a way of doing life that, that ends with, with solidity, right? Because notice what it says. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness when it has its full effect, so that you may be perfect. That's the Greek word teleos, means mature or whole. That you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing, right? There's one way in which, in which our faith is grown and matured and we are strengthened. And there's another way that leads when, when, when we approach God with doubt, right? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously without reproach. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea. Notice that's the exact opposite of stability. A wave of the sea is driven by currents and by wind. That's not where we like to live life, y'all. We don't like to be completely at, at, at the whim of our environment where we are driven, we have no emotional and personal stability, we have no strength. Um, when things are good, we're great. When things are bad, we're horrible, and we feel like we're out of control, right? Not only, it goes on, for that person must not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord, for he is double-minded and unstable in all of his ways, right? So, so in, in one path, listen, he's writing to believers in Jesus, and he's saying, you're going to live your life in one of two ways. You're either going to be living your life so that you are on a path where you are becoming steadily more mature and stable in your faith, or you're going to be living your life in such a way that you are progressively becoming less stable, less mature, and more double-minded in your walk with Christ. So let me see if you can guess. Which one do you think we're more inclined to? Yeah, we're generally not inclined to anything good on our own, let's just be honest. Um, we talked about this last week, um, because our hearts are worldly, we have a natural bent toward independence from God. Because our hearts are worldly, we have a natural bent toward doing life 
apart from God. Worldliness, all right, remember worldliness. Christians by and large have really messed this word up because broader Christian culture has defined worldliness as bad things out there, right? So we just need to stay away from things that are worldly, the bad movies and the, and the bad clubs and the bad bars and the, the bad people and the bad entertainment, all that stuff. We just need to stay away from it. The problem is that's not how the Bible defines worldliness. Worldliness is an internal problem, not an external problem. Worldliness is our way of trying to do life apart from God, trying to get the blessings of life apart from the God who gives those blessings. Worldliness is our attempt to fulfill the sin of Genesis chapter 3 where mankind looked at God and said, we will be like God. We will be our own authority. We will set our own path. We will set our own glories, our, our own, we'll set our own rules. We will pursue our own glory. We will provide for our own security. We will do it our way. We want everything you can give, but we want it without relationship with you and without having to submit to you. We want all the blessings without any of the responsibilities. We want all the goodness without the relationship. That worldly impulse in our hearts comes out just as much in our religion as it does in our pleasures, which is why it can be just as worldly to go to church as it is to go to the strip club. There are people who, who put on morality and put on religion, and, and do, it's all part of their little self-improvement project because they feel better about themselves when they're moral. They feel better about themselves when they perform well. They like the pride of feeling like, man, I've done well, and I'm better than you, right? Some people do it through pleasure. They give themselves over to the pleasures of the world in inappropriate ways. They try to find the, pleasure, the, the blessing of God in, in bodily pleasures and in ways that God doesn't provide it. Others try to do it through morality and performance in ways God doesn't provide it. They're both worldly right? They're both worldly. And, and so as Christians, listen, we want God to bless our self-improvement projects. We want God to bless our self-aggrandizement projects, right? Instead of submitting to his redemption and restoration project. And he wants to deliver us once again into the freedom of humility. He wants to deliver us once again into the power of humble dependence on Him. Listen, the goal of the Christian life is not moral improvement. That's the byproduct. Right? God, God isn't about us just getting us to fix up and clean up our behavior. He wants us humbly and completely dependent on Him. He wants us receiving His love and being transformed by that love that we might love Him in return. And when we're there, we will change morally. We will change our behavior. We will change everything about our lives, but it won't be us cleaning ourselves up for God. It'll be us responding to God's efforts to redeem and restore. So, you guys, we are told, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Why? Because this is God's primary tool to free you from your worldliness. This is the primary way in which God works on your heart to free you from the worldliness that is your, your default mode, the thing that you are enslaved to, your desire to do life apart from God, right? So in verse 4, or verse 3 and 4, he tells us how he does this. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This word testing is um, a rare Greek word. It's, it's only used two other places in the Bible. Peter uses it once in one of his letters. It's used in the Septuagint, uh, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament in, in the Psalms. And in those places, the word is translated genuine. I love that. Genuine. Here it's 
the flip side, making something genuine, testing it. Not testing it to find out if it's real, testing it to improve it, testing it to fix it, testing it. Listen, this is Steve's language. God wants to make your faith real. He wants it to be authentic. And God does that through your trials. God is at work in our trials to do something incredibly important. He is making our faith genuine. He is making our faith real. You guys, if we're honest followers of Jesus, I think most of us would admit we follow Jesus for a lot of very selfish reasons. Aren't we kind of a mixed motivation, right? Well, I, I want heaven. I want blessing. I want goodness. I want, I want my best life now, and I want it then too. I want all the riches. I want to be a son of God. I want to be a daughter of God. I want to be blessed by God. I want the goodness of God, right? And there's a lot of, if we're honest, a lot of very self-focused, self-serving motivation in there, right? There's, there's a lot of mixed motivations in there. So I, there's probably a little bit of, well, I love God, and He's glorious, right? And because He's glorious, He deserves my love, whether or not He even blesses me, right? But there's more than that. There's, this is good for me, right? I got my goals, and, and my goals are for my good, and, and God promises to be for my good, so I'm in this thing. Listen, God's not put off by your weak faith, but He's not going to settle for it either. God loves you with an irrepressible love, and He's not going to be satisfied until you can receive it. And you can't receive it as long as you're coming with self-serving motivation. When you're coming to God, who is pouring out infinite love, and you're saying, yeah, thanks, I want a bigger paycheck, you realize you're getting the worst end of the deal, right? God, who has given you his greatest blessing, he himself will not be satisfied until you are in a place where you can receive he himself. He will not let you live for your small dreams nor receive your small blessings. He will free you into the greater blessings. He will strengthen your faith. And he does that through testing. He does it through this purifying, this idea of, of melting it down so that the dross can be removed, so that it can become genuine. And he does this to your faith. He is testing your faith. All right, let's take a minute and talk about faith, just because, again, in this passage, I've heard this, um, this idea really abused, right? Because in verse 3, he's testing our faith. Down in verse 6, let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea. Um, there are some people who will come to this passage and teach faith as if it were some kind of work, something you've got to do. You know, you've got to have faith, and if you don't have enough faith, well, just work up a little bit more faith, <laughs> you know? Because if you have doubts, you know, God, God's not going to bless you. So you better have more faith. Well, how do I do that? Well, read your Bible more. Pray more. Memorize more scripture. Put better mantras on your mirror in the morning. Talk yourself into a greater strength of faith. Don't entertain any doubts. Pretend like they don't even exist if they're there. Because if you have doubts, it undercuts your faith, right? And so what it does is it turns faith into this work. And when it turns it into a work, it becomes an overwhelming burden that we can't bear. Who among us can ever do that? Say, we have a faith that has no doubts. Who could do that? Nobody. Faith isn't a work, you guys. Faith isn't something we conjure up. Faith isn't something we talk ourselves into. Faith isn't something that we, like a mountain that we climb. Faith is a response to God's loving truth. It's trust. And trust is a response to something that we see that is both true and loving. Loving. 
God initiates toward us in truth and love and then says, respond to me in faith. Trust me. To, to have faith is to respond to the love of God. Not to, not to conjure up this confidence, not to have this, but to respond to the love of God. So, so then what does it mean to have doubts here? What does it mean for the person who, who is approaching God in faith, but they're entertaining doubts? Well, let me ask you something. What are they doubting? Well, the faith teachers would say, well, they doubt their faith. They need to have more confidence in their faith as if our faith were in our faith. <laughs> our faith is never in our faith. Our faith is always in a person who initiates toward us in love. So if you're approaching him with doubt, it's not that you don't have enough faith in your faith. It's that you don't have enough faith in God. You're coming to him and saying to him, I want the blessings of my salvation. I want the blessings of, of Christ's redemption. I want the blessing of heaven, and I want the blessing of all the good things you give. But I want those blessings on my terms. I want those blessings in my way. I want those blessings on my timing. See, when we come in doubt, what we're saying is, I trust you with the big things of my life, but I don't trust you to do it in the way that pleases me. I want you to give me your blessings, and I want you to give me your blessings in my way, on my timing, on my terms. Do you understand, are you starting to see the worldliness that is woven into this? Our way of saying to God, you're not going to be God. We want the blessings of God without having to submit to God. We want the goodness of God without, I doubt God. And so because I doubt the goodness of God, I put my trust in the goodness of my plans, in the goodness of my efforts. And so instead of trusting God with my sexuality, instead of trusting God with my finances, instead of trusting God with my job, instead of trusting God with my relationships, I instead come to God and say, I know you're the giver of good gifts. This is how you need to give them. I know you're the giver of good gifts. This is when I need it and how I need it and the terms on which I need it. Listen, when we approach God like that, the text tells us that we are double-minded. See that down there at the bottom in verse 8? He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The word double-minded literally means double-souled. You're trying to do life in two different worlds. You're trying to live in the blessings of the kingdom to come on the terms of the kingdom that is. You're trying to say, I want all the blessings of the kingdom of Christ, but I want them translated to the world in which I live. See, this is the irony of a lot of prosperity teachers today. They teach a very worldly form of faith because God's going to bless you, and since God's going to bless you, you need bigger cars and better houses and more money and, and, and no sickness, and, 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 and if you just had enough faith. And, and, and the irony is they quote these very verses, and these very verses undercut that kind of understanding of Scripture. This isn't about you telling God how he must bless you. It is you coming to a place where you can actually receive the blessing he's already given because he's already given you everything in Christ. Do you realize the greatest blessing God has given us is his love? And the greatest challenge we have in life is to receive it. We don't like to trust. We don't like to be dependent. We don't like to be helpless. Are you starting to see why suffering is so critically important? Because your suffering will take you to a place you will never voluntarily go 
Your suffering will put you in a situation before God that you would never willingly place yourself, a place of dependence and helplessness. When I spent two hours laying on my bathroom floor, curled up in the fetal position in extreme pain, and that phrase was going through my head over and over and over again, count it all joy, count it all joy, count it all joy, one thing was made very clear to me. In that moment, I'm incredibly vulnerable and helpless. I couldn't fix what was wrong. I couldn't stop it. I could not conjure up enough authority to command God. And some of you, that's exactly what you're trying to do. There's something going on in your life, and you're angry at God because he won't play by your rules nor act according to your timing. Listen, that's the path to becoming a double-souled man, a double-minded man unstable in all of his ways because he, he has all the blessings of Christ and yet he's unable to enter into them because, because his lack of faith keeps him from dependently receiving the love of God. When you're curled up in the fetal position on the floor in that pain, you know what you need more than anything else? And I'm speaking metaphorically here. <laughs> Hopefully, not, you know, like, like when life's got you in that position, you need to know you're loved. There's no greater comfort than to know that the God of the universe, the God who, who is the measure of all things, the God who has the power to, to redeem and restore, looks at you and loves you. Right? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. See, when you know that you've got that kind of love, it gives you a strength that can't be compared to your willpower or your finances or your, like there is a strength. You, you know, you ever met a believer who's got that strength, man? There's just something to them. There, there's an unshakable life. There is a, there is a, they, it's not that they never experience sorrow but there is a hope in them, a vision in them, a strength in them. That's steadfastness. Steadfastness is the Greek word hupomene. We've talked about this word in the past. I like it um, because it reminds me of a hippo. Hippos remain hippomone. Um, and the visual image that comes into my mind is of this hippo that just goes under the water and stays there. Literally, it means, the word means to remain under. Hupomone endurance, steadfastness. See, when I go under the water, I turn blue. I start panicking. My, my lungs start burning. You know what I'm saying? And pretty soon I'm like, I need out. That's how a lot of you feel with your job, with that broken relationship, with that deep pain. I need out. Maybe you don't need out. Maybe you just need more strength. There are two ways to solve that problem. The one is for God to remove the burden. The other is for him to increase your emotional and spiritual strength so that it becomes lighter. As you learn to allow him to strengthen you, for him to come in and give you the strength, and pretty soon what was once a crushing weight now becomes even a point of pride, healthy pride. 
as you have learned to grow in steadfastness, the ability to remain under. Because here's the thing, you guys, while we live in this age, we live in an age of brokenness and hurt. We live in an age of betrayal and death. We need endurance in this age. Some of us are are wrestling. We want an over-realized eschatology. We We want the kingdom of God now. Right? We, we, want, we want all the blessing now, all the freedom now. As if we want all the redemption and restoration now, and yet, and yet we live in this age where we are, we are called to enter into the blessing, but also to hope and wait for the fulfillment of the promise. We need endurance, and it's in endurance. Listen, this is the strength of it. Your endurance comes from being able to drink deeply at the fountain of God's love. Your endurance comes not from the strength of your convictions, but of the strength of your ability to drink deeply of the strength of God's love. Your strength comes from being loved, not from knowing a lot, or doing a lot, or achieving a lot, or climbing some spiritual mountain. Your strength comes in humility and dependence, steadfastness. God will work steadfastness, hupomone, this ability to be under without being crushed, to be underwater without drowning. He will work this in you. And this steadfastness, according to verse 4, when it has its full effect, leads you to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Mature. That's Christian maturity, you guys, Not, not having your act together all the time. Christian maturity isn't like never sinning. Christian maturity isn't never struggling. Christian maturity is absolute humility and dependence. And it's when we are absolutely humble and dependent on God, responding to the love of God, we are at our strongest. That's when God works in us the freedom and the strength and the power of this glory. Now, here's the thing, you guys. You know if you've ever been pushed to the end of yourself by your suffering This is an impossible task. If this is on your to-do list, you've already failed because you can't to-do it. If this is on your list of, well, this is what I've got to do to succeed in my Christian life, you've already failed. And that's why he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. You ever been pushed to that place where you're like, Lord, I I can't even like, I don't know, what are, yesterday, there were spots, I couldn't even, I couldn't get off the floor. Lord, can you meet me in this place of absolute dependence, of brokenness, of vulnerability? Can you meet me even here? Right? So what's wisdom? What is this thing that we're supposed to be asking for? See, wisdom is different than knowledge, right? Knowledge is the building blocks. It's knowing the right things so you can do the right things. What's wisdom? Wisdom is knowing the right thing to build. Wisdom is having the ability to look through the smoke and mirrors of this age and see what is real because we're constantly surrounded by things that glitter. And we love glittery things. Fame and vacations and pleasure and, 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 and all the things that, that are meant to entice us and ensnare us. Even in the Christian life, right? There's, there's glittery things everywhere. Worldliness. Wisdom is the ability to see through the worldliness to what is real wisdom is the ability to see things for what they are and order your life in accordance with what is real. When we're suffering, we need wisdom. When we're suffering, we need to be able to see past what is temporary and present to what is real and lasting. 
We need wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously without reproach. You guys, look at these. This is incredible. He gives it generously and without reproach. You know, interestingly enough, we often approach God when we feel really good about ourselves and feel pretty confident coming into his presence. I'm doing pretty good. I've read my Bible every day this week. I haven't done that sinful thing for 12 days. My wife was rude to me, and I wasn't back. You know what I'm saying? Like you get this little resume, you like slide across the table to God. I'm doing pretty good, huh? Mm -hmm. Tell me how good I'm doing. See, ironically, that's when we're least able to receive the love of God because we're so full of self-love. We're coming in our strength, not in our weakness. See, when we come in our weakness, that's when we often feel like we're going to be rejected. When we come in, in, in our brokenness and our weakness, that's often when we feel like God's not going to invite us in because we feel so vulnerable, we feel so shameful, we feel so limited. And yet that's the very time we are most receptive to what God is giving us when we come into his presence. And James tells us, when you come to him in this place of brokenness and need and vulnerability, God meets you without reproach. He doesn't look at you and say, too bad you couldn't do better. Too bad you didn't perform. Too bad you you struggled. Too bad you, 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 yeah, but I had doubts. Too bad, too bad. God doesn't measure us by our performance. He accepts us based on Christ's. And so when we come in the humility of dependency, we are received without reproach. When you come to him in the brokenness of your shame, in the heaviness of your guilt, in the reality of all of your limitations and all your sinfulness, you are received without reproach. And he will give you wisdom generously. This word generously is another beautiful word. This is the only place this Greek word is used in the New Testament. The root of it means single. As in singly. He gives it to us singly, generously. What does that mean, singly? How in the world is that? Well, think about it this way. When you show up, his attention isn't divided. When you show up, his intentions are not divided. Well, maybe I'll bless him this time, or maybe I won't. He is singly focused on your redemption and your restoration. His intent is for His glory, and the outworking of that is your blessing. He is singly focused. He has a single eye, a single purpose, a single motivation, and a single action. He receives you to bless you because He receives you in the generosity of His grace. When you come to Him in your need, when you are driven to Him by your pain, when you are frustrated by your limitations, when you are at an end of yourself, God receives you. But He doesn't just receive you with a, oh yeah, finally you showed up. He receives you with an absolute infinite outpouring of His love and His acceptance and His presence and His grace. He is singly focused. Compare that to us. How often do we come as double-minded men and women to God 
trying to claim the blessings of God on our terms, in our ways, saying to God, I want all of your best, and this is how it needs to come, trying to live in the blessing of the age to come, but trying to do it in the values of the age that is. What an amazingly humble God we serve that he would receive double-minded men when we come in the brokenness of our humility at the end of ourself and he receives us with the single purpose to bless. And when we come to him in that kind of faith, responding to his love, listen to me, you guys, that's really what's going on here. When you are broken and you are hurt, you need to know more than anything else that God is absolutely for you and that he loves you, that he hasn't abandoned you, he hasn't left you. Even though there are broken things in this world, God will work through those broken things to bless you and to free you. When you come with that kind of faith, he meets you. And when he meets you in his love, it changes you and it builds within you this hupomene, this steadfastness that gives you strength. Now listen, here's the beautiful thing about this strength. When you know you are deeply loved, when you know and you are able to experience and receive this love, it doesn't just strengthen your spiritual life as if that was even a thing. People who talk about their spiritual life and their work life and their, man, they don't understand life. There's no such thing as a spiritual life and a non-spiritual life. It's just life. When God gives you hupomene, it strengthens every area of your life. There's no area of your life that is not improved No area of your life that is not strengthened. No area of your life that does not experience the blessing of God. Because this is the root of all blessings. It's the gift of God himself. When our hearts are broken and we learn to receive the love of God instead of trying to perform for it. When our hearts are broken and we we receive the love of God instead of pretending, performing, working. We're just broken and receiving and responding It unleashes the very power of the resurrection in our lives. It allows us to live in this broken world, but in the joy of the world to come. It allows us to endure the sorrow and the hurt and the suffering of this place, but to do it with a hope and 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 a joy and a vibrancy that comes from being able to see through the smoke and mirrors to what is real and what is lasting. If you find yourself in that place of uh, profound pain, um, there are no simple answers here. Because there are no simple answers when you're in pain. But there is hope here. There is an outpouring of God's infinite and powerful love here. And there is an invitation here to see your suffering through the lens of your faith. And in so doing, allowing God to come in and work in you in the midst of your suffering. If you find yourself in a season where you are not metaphorically curled up on the bathroom floor in the fetal position, don't despise your small trials. Do you realize that it's good for you to be made uncomfortable? that God is at work in your daily discomforts in the same way he's at work in you in your deep and profound pain. Don't despise the work of God on the quiet days. 
Embrace them. Recognize that all the variegated suffering and all the multi-shaded trials are an invitation to embrace the love of God. God's at work just as much on the quiet days as he is on the incredibly painful days. The challenge, though, is that we are going to be on one of two courses. We will either be daily looking at our lives through the lens of our faith, embracing the love of God, or we will be daily hardening our hearts to the love of God and determining that God must bless us on our terms and our way. We will either be fostering a faith-driven joy or we'll be protecting a self-centered bitterness. There's an invitation here, you guys, to be loved and in being loved to be transformed. All right, I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. And uh, we're going to share communion together. But uh, let me pray for us first, and then we'll go into a time of response. Father, I, I thank you that, um, that you are singly minded on, our, on your glory and our good, that, that you don't harbor doubts, you don't harbor second-guessing, you don't receive us with one arm open and the other waiting to see if we're worthy. You've already determined, even though we're not worthy, you're going to make us worthy. Even though we approach you with double-mindedness, you always approach us with a single-minded focus of blessing and love. Lord, will you teach us what it means to count it all joy as we encounter the various trials of life? To see your hand at work. And even when we can't see your hand at work, even when we can't understand what's going on, that we would trust your heart and that as we trust your heart, it would lead us to trust your hand. That we would have more confidence in you than we have in ourselves. We would have more confidence in your plan, your love, your redemption, your restoration than we have in, in our self-salvation, self-prosperity projects. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.